Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday, the 27th of September, 2023. We're now 29 minutes past one, uh, but we're delighted to bring you UK column news from our new studio in Plymouth. Many apologies for the slight delay. Despite checks yesterday, the gremlins were at work. Now, we've got a very interesting news for you today, and uh, I'm delighted uh, Mike Robinson and myself will be hosting together with Alex Thompson, and we do also have a guest. But let's uh, kick off with probably the most important thing to do with free speech at the moment, which is the online safety bill. Uh, well, the Online Safety Act, as it almost is, and uh, the penny is beginning to drop. More and more people starting to talk about uh, the issues arising from this. Um, but before we get on to the issues, uh, let's just have a little look at a piece of video here. Uh, this is uh, Dame Melanie Dawes, who is the uh, Chief Executive of Ofcom, and her response to the fact that it is about to become law. Today is a major milestone in the mission to create a safer life online for people across the UK. And we are absolutely ready now, Ofcom, to crack on with the implementation of these new laws. And we feel very privileged to have been entrusted with this role. In a matter of weeks now, we will come out with the standards that we expect tech firms to put in place to protect children and to make sure that all of us are protected from illegal activity like fraud. So we're excited to get started. Okay, so... Today is a major milestone in... Okay, so uh, uh, Dame Melanie Dawes, they're extremely excited that Ofcom is going to be the regulator of the internet. Now, this has been a long time coming. Uh, and uh, well, let's uh, just see what the law of the actually bill actually says. So I'm just going to take one example here. This is the online safety bill. Uh, this is all about false communications. Uh, this is section 180 of the bill. A person commits an offense if the person sends a message uh, and the message conveys information that the person knows to be false. Uh, now, how you define or how you discover whether somebody knows that message to be false or not, I have no idea. But anyway, that's what it says. At the time of sending, the person inte uh, intended uh, the message or the information in it to cause non-trivial psychological or physical harm to a likely audience. So again, uh, how do we define what non-trivial psychological harm is? Uh, and finally, that the person has no reasonable excuse for sending the message. So the question is whether uh, you know, some kind of opposition to a government policy would be considered a reasonable excuse. Uh, Section 180 goes on to say, for the purposes of this offence, an individual is a likely audience of a message if, at the time the message is sent, it's reasonably foreseeable that the individual would encounter the message or uh, in the online context would encounter a subsequent message forwarding or sharing the content of the message. So if your message is being shared, uh, that absolutely uh, would uh, cause you to be considered to be in breach of this section of the Act. Um, it goes on to say, uh, in the case where several or many individuals are a likely audience, because it could be a likely audience could be one uh, individual, and in that case, then they're obviously trying to deal with at least they would claim that they're trying to deal with uh, malicious communications to an ex-partner or somebody who's a stalker or something like that. But in the case where several or many individuals are the likely audience, it's not necessary for the purposes of subsection 1c that the person intended to cause harm uh, to any one of them in particular. So 
Uh, you don't have to de demonstrate that any individual was caused harm if the message was sent to multiple people. Uh, and it goes on to say this, a person who commits an offence under this section is liable on summary conviction in England Wales to imprisonment for a term uh, not exceeding the maximum term for summary offences. In this case, this would be six months or a fine. Uh, that would be £5,000. Now, Alex can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, in my, as far as I understand it, this would be for each, uh, each uh, case or each uh, example of breach of the regulation. Uh, and if we just put that back on for a second, please, Stephanie, on summary conviction in Northern Ireland to imprisonment for a term not exceeding six months or a fine not exceeding level five on the standard scale. Now, level five on the standard scale is an unlimited uh, level. So, so actually, the potential fine in Northern Ireland seems to be or appears to be at this point to be much higher. Um, so just before we go on to what it says in section 181, Alex, what are your thoughts uh, on, on this and the, the, the risk that people are placed under by this piece of legislation? Come home to roost. Uh, the reasonable excuse clause is quite a good example of that. The, the parliamentary clerks who draft legislation to reflect the will of Parliament would never have allowed that to pass in the past because whether you're in a common law or a civil law jurisdiction, that's for the court to determine. You know, it will find that you are guilty of the statutory offence, but you had a reasonable excuse. By dint of putting that into the drafting of the bill, uh, you are removing court's discretion. And then as regards Northern Ireland being on a separate regime, well, we don't have time to get into the new reality of what legal scholars are already calling indirect rule. That is senior mandarins in Whitehall at the Northern Ireland office governing Northern Ireland instead of ministers either in Stormont or Westminster. Clearly, the settled view of our governing class is that your native Northern Irish people are more sensitive souls. Uh, you know, hard to, hard to believe, but uh, because there's more social damage to be done there runs the pious uh, maxim. Therefore, we really have to shock the people of Ulster out of sending anything nasty. Even the idea of a likely audience. I mean, this is um, something that was done first with written messages in the Public Order Act 1986, legendary and notorious sections four and five that talk about posters or anything that's on display to the public uh, being at risk. So, you know, it's a whole generation of confused thinking and mishmash uh, really come to the fore in, in uh, for those who follow literature, it's the reader response theory. There's no meaning, meaning in the text or the speaker, let alone mens rea. It's all people's feelings. Indeed. And, and with the, the, obviously, would have to be tested in court. But anyway, uh, let's move on to section 181, because this is the important bit, because those regulations uh, and that law doesn't apply to, if we look at the first clause here in section 181, a recognised news publisher. So in other words, if... Uh, one of us agrees uh, that we should uh, submit to the regulation uh, of Ofcom or the, the, if you're print media of Ipso or one of the other regulators, uh, then you would be recognised as a news publisher and therefore you cannot, according to this, commit an offence under Section 180. Uh, and the other point to make here is uh, that uh, an offence under Section 180 can't be committed, cannot be committed by a provider of an on-demand programme service. Um, so that would be the likes of, uh, you know, all you know, Channel 4 or Channel 5 or any of these uh, broadcast media on-demand services. Uh, but if uh, we remember what was going on with Advod and the UK column, uh, they were attempting to complain that we were, or to claim that we were an on-demand programme service. So perhaps that gives us some scope for uh, uh, consideration there. But nonetheless, it is extremely interesting that it's only members of the general public uh, really that are 
at risk from this particular legislation if you're a recognized news service you're not uh, now it looks like and alex it'd be interested in a little bit of comment from you on this it looks like at least one person uh, warren thornton has already been picked up uh on basically on the on the back of uh, the legislation which isn't fully uh legislation yet uh but it looks like at least one person has been arrested taken to bristol uh police station and held uh for a night um and uh that's quite an incredible situation for uh, what's been described as mal information i must confess i am nonplussed by this one mike i do not doubt the credentials the earnestness of the lady uh who has put out the claim in a video of her own uh, that while uh, Mr. Thornton was live streaming yesterday, the 26th of September, um, the heavies came and did a German style you know, uh, raiding of the live stream. You, what you're doing is, is wrong think. Uh, but it has been claimed and I cannot see any other basis on the statute books. Again, lawyers, please correct me if I'm wrong here. We do like correction uh, than this bill. Uh, so whether the goons have got to the stage of actually anticipating royal assent, which would complete the trick begun in 1854 as to royal assent, uh, that's, that, that's the likeliest explanation, uh, barring anything else that, that suggests itself, that police have assumed that the bill is now law. Uh, indeed. So let's just uh, quickly have a look at some of the uh, Twitter comment on this. Uh, so here is Car Carol McGiffin. Uh, the online safety bill is quotes no more or, le uh, or less than a volume control that allows authorities to turn down all the way to silence voices they don't want anywhere to anyone to hear. So this is reflecting one of the features of this act, and that is that the act claims uh, that it will maintain freedom of speech. And of course it does. It absolutely says you have the right to say whatever you want to say, unless, uh, as we've already discussed, it's considered to be misinformation or disinformation or malinformation, as this new term seems to be. Uh, but what it doesn't do is give you any right to be heard. Uh, so what it's effectively doing is uh, saying, uh, you know, you, you, you have no right to be listed by a search engine. You have no right to be actually promoted by a social media platform and so on. So it effectively makes shadow banning and so on uh, something that is considered legal. Uh, here's another one uh, from James Melville. The online safety bill to become law and crackdown and harmful social media content. But for government and tech companies to act as arbiters over online content risks becoming a road to hell that's paved with biased censorship intentions. Well, of course, the road to hell, we've been walking that road for since 2017, basically. In fact, we could even go back to 2015 with David Cameron's uh, United Nations General Assembly speech, uh, which began this whole process. Um, then we've got GB News here saying uh, the online safety bill branded a form of communism by Matt Letizia in a scathing rant. Uh, and finally, then we've got uh, whose device is your phone anyway? And of course, this particular from Silky Carlo talking about the, the effect that this is having on end-to-end uh, -end encryption and effectively, effectively is going to require uh, social or communications companies to provide backdoors into end-to-end -end encryption. Not everybody is threatening or uh, sort of listing the problems with the bill. Uh, of course, as we would expect, the Center for Countering Digital Hit is extremely excited about it. Um, but then there's the question of, and Brian's going to be coming on to uh, Russell Brand in a second, but there's the question of Rumble and the fact that Rumble has taken a stand uh, on Russell Brand. Um, Rumble has already started losing advertising, or advertisers rather, 
um, over the fact that they have uh, supported Russell Brand. Uh, and uh, this was one of the mechanisms that was used to persuade YouTube to be quite so draconian with its uh, censorship regime. Um, because YouTube uh, started kicking people off when the advertisers started leaving. Now, uh, Rumble used to be a, pri a totally privately owned company. It subsequently went through an IPO, and so it's now beholden to shareholders. And the question is whether the shareholder pressure is going to force them to, to, to walk back on their position at this point and how long they can maintain their position as a, a, a freedom of speech platform remains to be seen. Uh, but as a result of the uh, Caroline Dynage uh, uh, message last week, then the question of whether Rumble uh, would even stay in the country uh, because uh, the online safety bill is going to put uh, legal massive fines and potential imprisonment on the uh, managers and the owners of, of companies. Um, so uh, Mint Press here saying after the passing of the online safety bill, Rumble is at risk of shutting down in the UK. Uh, Chris Paslowski, who's the uh, CEO, said it was deeply inappropriate and dangerous for the UK government to choose who can talk or make a career on their platform. Uh, but The Sun, according to Glenn Greenwald, was, uh, was uh, print printing this today. Failing to cooperate with Ofcom could put Rumble executives at risk of arrest of visiting Britain. Uh, so this is quite a staggering situation, Brian, that uh, you know, platforms like this uh, looking at serious uh, legal problems and, and a potential imprisonment for supporting freedom of speech. Well, well, it is, Mike, but the answer is this is very simple. This is a dictatorship installing itself in plain sight, and people have got to recognise it for what it is. It is state control of the media. It's closed down of free speech. And it's obvious the intent is that nobody will have an opinion which disagrees with anything the government says. So let's follow uh, that report up by coming back to the uh, Dynage affair. Uh, this was uh, the uh, letter that she sent to the chief executive of Rumble, which we covered a few days ago. We also pointed out the relationship, well, her uh, husband um, uh, connected through to 77 Brigade, the very body spying on the British public. Um, but now we've got this extraordinary announcement, which has come out from the Attorney General. And... Um, I've labelled it here as panic as the UK government realises that their own actions to label Brand guilty before the trial could backfire. So what has the Attorney General had to say? Let's just have a look at some of the uh, text of that. It said, following the airing of Russell Brand in plain sight dispatches on the 16th of September 2023, there's been extensive reporting about Russell Brand. The Attorney General, uh, here she is, Victoria uh, Prentice, uh, wishes to amplify the importance of not publishing any material where there is a risk that it could, it could prejudice any potential criminal investigation or prosecutions. And she goes on, publishing this material could amount to contempt of court. Now, I've added in there that she doesn't mention anything to do with fair trials. And I don't believe that there is the slightest intention of providing a, f a fair trial. But the government's now worried that its own ministers acting to accuse uh, Russell Brandt could actually backfire on such a trial. So let's finish off the text. Editors, publishers and social media users should take legal advice to ensure that they are in a position to fully comply with the obligations to which they are subject under 
the Common Law, interesting that's mentioned, and the Contempt of Court Act 1981. And uh, a final uh, piece here, uh, the Attorney General's Office is monitoring the coverage of these allegations, and I think we need a question here, who exactly will be doing the monitoring of what is appearing on social media or indeed in the media? Is that going to be done by the British Army 77 Brigade uh, Division, which had... Uh, is quite possible since they were active during COVID-19, or is it going to be some special secretive department of the uh, of the Ministry of Culture, Media and Support uh, and Sport? Uh, the key bit is that we simply don't know. But if we uh, move on, and a big thank you to our UK column viewer that highlighted this to me, uh, we've got a report in the Press Gazette, and this is all about the fact that. Um, Dame Caroline Denage has also now gone for GB News. GB News impartiality undermined by Bev Turner, support for Russell Brand, MP warns. So the government itself, its own ministers going straight for uh, Russell Brand. Uh, if I've just moved through here, um, this is part of the comment. Uh, that she made. While GB News is not responsible for this content, it is concerning that Beverly Turner, who described Mr. Brand as a hero and invited him to appear on her show, subsequently fronted GB News coverage of the allegations regarding Mr. Brand on the morning of the 18th of September. While Ms. Turner was challenged on her comments at length by a co-presenter, uh, Andrew Pierce, we remain concerned that having a presenter so clearly supporting an individual who is the subject of intense media coverage, including seeking their appearance on the show, undermines any perception of due impartiality in the broadcasting. I thought this was an extraordinary statement, uh, uh, Mike, because of course what it is showing is that at the moment uh, there's no reason um, for her to be doing what she's doing. Uh, uh, simply that uh, this person has a, has a high profile. But if we go to legislation to actually see what's being talked about, his contempt of court, uh, that includes disobeying or ignoring a court order, taking photographs or shouting out in court, refusing to answer the court's questions if you're called as a witness, publicly commenting on a court case, for example, on social media or online news articles, and uh, we've got public comments here saying whether you think a person is guilty or innocent, referring to someone's previous convictions, naming someone the judge is allowed to be anonymous, naming victims, witnesses and offenders, naming sex crime victims, sharing ev any evidence or facts about a case that the judge has said cannot be made public. And again, here's the rap. If you're found to be in contempt of court, you could go to prison for up to two years, get a fine or both. But let's remind ourselves that at the moment there is no court case. So, Alex, I'm going to use a slightly, uh, um, <laughs> slightly difficult. This is a dog's breakfast of the law. The law has been served up as a mismatch, a mishmash in order to confuse people as to what they can and cannot say about Russell Brand. At this stage, Brian, I'm going to call this development the Alex Salmondization of English law. Alex Salmond was the first minister of Scotland and the leader of the Scottish National Party. And in the show notes, we will put a playlist of my readings, largely of work by Craig Murray, 
uh, the former British ambassador turned Scottish nationalist politician, uh, who found just how um, injurious to any notion of fair trials and democracy, this spread of the idea of criminal contempt of court, which is judges ruling from the bench that you broke the law with no parliamentary uh, leg to stand on other than their own conceived ideas of what their orders are. Uh, just how far that spread. Uh, in the Salmon trial, it was perfectly obvious. So to, to jump to the conclusion there, for those who don't want to wade through that playlist of my recordings or aren't familiar with it, uh, Murray very well documented on his blog for a long time that if you were favorable to the regime, for example, it's even comparable because it revolves around the lead allegations of harassing women. Uh, if you take great liberties with women, but are in the regime's good books, uh, then a blind eye will be turned. If, however, you question, for example, I'm going to be pointed here, uh, that the women who make allegations against a public figure were pure as the driven snow, and particularly if you question this false claim that they are utterly naive and vulnerable rather than being middle-aged women in public life who jolly well know what they're doing, then you have hell to pay. And you do not need parliament for that, you just need the court. Uh, the judge sitting alone in many cases. Uh, Scottish law, of Scots law, is has its similarities with England, but uh, both the common law and the statutory route are different on vital points. And so it was thought that this would be re uh, something reserved to Edinburgh. But I think it's been piloted now north of the border enough for it to be spread to England. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that, Alex. Uh, well, that moves us on to Armenia. It does. Uh, we're going to bring a map on screen. Um, this is a convoluted region. All three of my segments with my guest, Gevorg Virats, who is uh, an Armenian from uh, Georgia, the neighbouring country, will cover the Nagorno-Karabakh war. Both maps on screen show the same territory and they're convoluted, but that's the whole point. At the bottom of the image is Iran, south of the Araxes River. Off screen to the north is Georgia and beyond that, Russia. Just west of the screen is the eastern edge of Turkey. And the key thing to bear in mind is that the legal, the de jure territory of Azerbaijan, one of the 15 former Soviet republics, is the whole block you see marked Azerbaijan plus the non-contiguous exclave marked as Nakhichevan in the southwest corner of both images. Um, the Azeris have, via that corridor, uh, sorry, via that exclave, a very narrow road connecting them with Turkey. And then they are allowed overflights, although they were in the early 90s between Armenia and Azerbaijan, over, over Nagorno-Karabakh, they are allowed to overfly, uh, which means that there is a way for Turkey to supply civilian and military goods and people tra transport from Turkey to Azerbaijan's exclave, Nakhichevan, and then to Azerbaijan proper. Armenia, too, has a de facto exclave. It is a self-proclaimed autonomous republic. It was in Soviet times, too. We won't go into the detail of the pogroms in Soviet times, starting again in 1988. For that, go to the previous podcasts I've done with Gevorg, which will be in the show notes. But people will see that Nagorno-Karabakh, delineated, delineated with the green line on the left-hand map, uh, had no contiguity with Armenia. And of course, was never acknowledged in international law as being an independent republic, not even after the genocide uh, accusations on both sides after the 1990s war. So you see on the left hand map, there is this narrow corridor, the Lachin corridor, where a part of Azerbaijan proper, although occupied by Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenian troops um, uh, since 1994, was used to supply this territory. Very convoluted, I know, because the right hand map 
shows also that what Turkey and Azerbaijan, with a lot of Israeli assistance now, and allegedly Russian as well, what they want to do is punch a hole in the bottom of Armenia proper. If you look at the right side, you will see that the green arrow suggests that the so-called Zangezur corridor would cut off Armenia just north of the border town of Mehri with Iran uh, so that there would be a land bridge all the way from Greece to China for Turkic nations allied with NATO uh, to ply their trade. Iran is utterly opposed to this, and so Iran has said things like they will assist with 10 times the force uh, anything that um, the assist the Armenians against any attempt by Azerbaijan and Turkey to go for uh, this Zangizur corridor. Why has this become relevant? Time is short. We are well aware of that. But it's become re relevant because of the video we're about to see. So for anyone who has missed it, and it hasn't been very well covered, uh, there is a, I think it's not uh, dramatic to call it a genocide underway. So this segment will be part of a report produced, which I think is the best done in English so far, by Christian Broadcasting Network in the United States. Uh, so for anyone who's behind the curve, um, the rest, the northern half of Nagorno-Karabakh, which survived after the 2020 and 2021 attacks by Azerbaijan, it would say to claim its own territory back. The rest of that ethnic Armenian territory has now effectively been defeated. Uh, many people on the move. So let's roll the clip and see what's going on. Officials from Armenia and Azerbaijan are set to meet today in Brussels for the first time since Azerbaijan's Muslim-majority forces seized control of the predominantly Armenian Christian territory of Nagorno-Karabakh last week. It was a nightmare. There are no words to describe. The village was heavily shelled. Almost no one is left in the village. Most people have been evacuated. The blitz attack forcing nearly 14,000 refugees to cross into Armenia, with thousands more stuck in massive traffic jams at the only checkpoint crossing. Amidst all this, a massive explosion at a fuel depot killed 20 and injured more than 300 as refugees scrambled to get gas before escaping. Joel Velkamp is with the human rights group Christian Solidarity International. Our friends there told us that people in Karabakh are deciding, some of them, to try to have the bodies of their loved ones who were killed in this war taken to Armenia in refrigerated cars to be buried there. Because if they bury them in Karabakh, they won't be able to visit them ever again, and their graves might be desecrated by Azerbaijani forces. Nagorno-Karabakh is a landlocked region between Azerbaijan and Armenia. This is an area of Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, that has been contested for many years. It has historically been filled with Armenians, Armenian cultures, the Christian faith. While it's been internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, the area has been ruled by ethnic Armenians for three decades. Two U.S. officials traveled to the region and met with Armenia's Prime Minister Monday. He told them ethnic cleansing is happening right now. We received word yesterday from our friends in Nagorno-Karabakh that um, essentially deportations are beginning of the entire Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh. Armenians are some of the first people in the world to embrace Christianity. Now there's concern their religious and ethnic history in Nagorno-Karabakh could be wiped out. The population of ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh should be able to remain in their homes in peace and dignity with respect for their rights and security if they choose to do so. Uh, those who want to leave and return should be allowed safe passage. So we're going to bring on Gevorg Virat in audio only, who's in the Caucasus and who's been assisting with humanitarian relief 
of the refuge. In the next segment, we will be zooming in on the humanitarian matters. But just in one or two minutes now, I'm going to ask Gevorg to explain for us why it is that the US State Department spokesman we heard at the end of this clip acknowledged tacitly that although the ethnic Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, after the defeat of their self-proclaimed republic, uh, have a, a right to stay where they are and to accept the new Azerbaijani citizenship which is being foisted upon them, why is it, Gevorg, that the overwhelming majority of the 120,000 ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh um, have decided to uh, take to the road and to seek their fortunes in Armenia proper? Uh, greetings, Alex. Thank you for uh, bringing me in on this. Uh, your question is a very uh, rightful one. My uh, take on this is that uh, the Russian peacekeeping troops that were stationed in that region after 2020 war, which incidentally began on the 27th of September that year, uh, the, those peacekeeping troops were unable to provide security to the population of Nagorno-Karabakh. And after the recent attack by Azerbaijan, when they have uh, targeted military as well as civilian population, the people have decided to uh, to not take it any longer and, and, and just uh, leave and be relocated to Armenia. Of course, that is happening in, midst, in the midst of uh, the casualties that were uh, seen by the population. And uh, there's about 100 people that were found uh, dead uh, after after the shellings and then the shootings perpetrated by Azerbaijan just within the last week. Thank you very much, Givorg. Also, in the show notes will be a book, and it'll be obvious to both our to our listeners and viewers that neither of us is neutral on this matter, nor indeed we think that neutrality is a case. Um, in the show notes will be a book. That, uh, whose English translation I edited a couple of years ago, and you published it, Gevorg, uh, entitled uh, Sadistic Pleasures, subtitled Silent Crimes of Azerbaijan by Ashken Arakelian. Uh, and this goes into heart-rending detail of how, as recently as two years ago, whenever the Azeris started their encroachments in the territory, they now completely have, well, they would say, taken back what's rightfully theirs. Uh, they would sub brutal tortures and particularly browbeat them to accept Islam, take on new Turkic identities and renounce their families. So it really is medieval stuff happening in what counts geographically as Europe in most people's definitions. I'd also note in passing that today is also the 30th anniversary, the 20th of September, 27th of September, of the fall of the Georgian separatist region of uh, Abkhazia, particularly its capital, Sukhumi, to Abkhaz forces. Uh, I know it's very, very relevant to you. Your father was an, an artillery instructor for the Georgian army in that war, and uh, incredible brutalities there also were uh, perpetrated, particularly upon the ethnic Georgians uh, in that war. So uh, a, a very... Uh, recent time, um, a harrowing time for a lot of people in the Caucasus, as all three of these former Soviet republics struggle with ghosts that they thought they had put to bed. The conflicts have all become unfrozen. But more on this later in the news. And uh, we are aware, by the way, that Mike's microphone is, is misbehaving. It was fine just before we started the news, and we cannot really touch it up while we're on air. Just a teething trouble with the new studio, so people should bear with us on that. Okay, thank you, Alex. Uh, so let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership, much appreciated and much needed. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. 
uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, I'm heading off to Sweden tomorrow for the uh, On Guard for the Liberty of Mankind event, which is happening uh, near Stockholm, uh, and uh, that'll be live streamed on Saturday, the 30th of September, but it's still not too late to get residential tickets if you want to go for the full three days. Uh, a number of fantastic speakers uh, and uh, more details at drspeel.com. Uh, you can get the details of that and uh, organise tickets if you are able to get there. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Now, also, we've put this one up before. There's a rally in Glasgow, um, Safe Schools for, for Children, September the 28th at 1.30pm, and that's in George Square, Glasgow. Uh, this is where people can really make a difference uh, to be there and, of course, to meet new people and to decide what's to be done. We've got another one here, November the 11th, exposing net zero, the agenda 2030. Uh, this is at the old convent beaches, Green Stroud in Gloucester. It's 10 a.m. till 6 p.m. And that's on Saturday, the 11th of November, 2023. So another one, if you can get there, these are all worth supporting. Um, now, what have we got? We've, um, we've got Jewel in Our Crown or Thorn in Our Side, part two, is the uh, NHS too sick to save. And uh, so that one has now gone up with the UK column. Uh, we've also got Monica Smith becoming a freedom advocate. And several people have already commented that this is a really excellent uh, uh, discussion. Uh, we've got um, going out on the 28th, tomorrow at one o'clock, an interview with Debbie Evans, uh, Chris Flowers and Cheryl Granger. So look out for that one. And uh, just to um, give some praise to our audience, the audience is engaging with us more and more. We're getting some really interesting information through. But this one just caught my eye because somebody picked up on our reports about the organisation Stop Having Kids. And they're saying that they couldn't help noticing the photo with Stop Having Kids. There were two more elderly looking people, I presume a man and a woman, and a younger lady sandwiched in the middle of the elderly couple with the words, words child-free and satisfied emblazoned across her chest. Now, my questions are, were all these people child-free and satisfied or did any of these people have any children? And were all the people in the photo unrelated? For me, this photo conjures up an image of a happy mother and father with their daughter. If this is the case, the photo is insincere. However, if this person is their daughter and they're happy to be childless, are they going to have the young lady eradicated from their lives? So astute point, and I know exactly why you're making that comment. We are still after information on this organisation because although people have pointed us at other reports, there's no detail as to who is actually behind it. So if you can help with any research, that would be good. Uh, now, of course, last week on Friday's programme, we were commenting on uh, Vladimir Zelensky in the United Nations General Assembly and the fact that he happened to be giving a speech at the same time he was sitting in the audience, or so it appeared uh, in the Ukrainian uh, coverage of this. Uh, but then he went off to Canada and, uh, well, here we are. He's meeting um, Justin Trudeau. They were very excited to get together and uh, he gave a speech in the Canadian Parliament. Now, I'm sure most people have heard about this already, but I felt we should uh, comment on it. Uh, let's just um, have a look at what happened uh, subsequent to that in the uh, Canadian Parliament. Ukrainian-Canadian world veteran 
from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. His name is Yaroslav Hunka. And uh, I was going to say he's in the gallery, but I think you beat me to that. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, well, before we say what was unfortunate about it, let's just put this image on screen as a still from the video. And of course, uh, Trudeau and Zelensky were uh, standing along with the rest of the parliamentarians there, uh, clapping uh, this individual who unfortunately turned out to be uh, literally an SS uh, officer. Um, so he was uh, fighting for the Germans. Uh, the clue should have been at the very beginning because uh, the the Speaker of the Chamber said, uh, you know, he had been fighting on behalf of, or fighting against the Russians. So the only side he could have been fighting with is the German side. Uh, but he was a member of the SS. Uh, let's uh, highlight him here. Here he is in the centre. Um, and uh, here is uh, the Polish response to that, which has been quite spectacular because uh, they were pretty upset about the fact that this uh, gentleman was getting uh, this kind of uh, uh, support. So the, in, the view, sorry, in view of the scandalous events in the Canadian Parliament, uh, which involved honouring uh, in the presence of President Zelensky, a member of the criminal Nazi SS uh, formation, uh, I have taken steps towards the possible extradition of this man to Poland. And the reason is because this particular uh, group of SS uh, were involved in the murders of Polish, or at least the Polish uh, view that they were murders of uh, Polish uh, civilians during the Second World War. Uh, and that was the uh, Polish education secretary uh, was making that statement. So Poland uh, saying that they're going to make some effort to extradite uh, uh, this, the gentleman concerned. I've forgotten his name. I do apologize for that. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's, of course, resulted in a whole swathe of apologies from the Canadian uh, authorities. Let's start off with Justin Trudeau. Obviously, it's extremely upsetting that this happened. Uh, the speaker, speaker has uh, acknowledged his mistake uh, and has apologized. Uh, but this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and, by extension, to all Canadians. I think particularly of Jewish MPs and all members of the Jewish community across the country who are uh, celebrating Yom, or commemorating Yom Kippur today. Uh, I think it's going to be really important that all of us push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine. So it wasn't really an apology. It was really an opportunity to say we've got to push back against Russian disinformation. Uh, well, anyway, the speaker then apologized himself. Uh, so let's have a listen to that. I want to apologize for what happened and really tell you that the intention was not to embarrass this house. My sincere apologies to the house, to each and every one of you who are in the house today and to all Canadians for having been put through this. Now, he has subsequently uh, resigned. Um, now, the Russian response uh, will just bring... Now, well, this wasn't Macri Maria Zakharov's uh, words. Uh, 
herself. This was a, a, a Russian statement from her department, but let's uh, uh, read this. It says, the public honoring of 98-year-old Bandera supporter uh, Yaroslav Hunka, a member of the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS, uh, at the Canadian Parliament during Vladimir Zelensky's visit, uh, is the best possible way to characterize the regime of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who's embraced unbridled Russophobia. Uh, it was the most cynical abuse of the memory of Nazism's victim, victims. The Ukrainian collaborators who served Nazis evaded accountability for the genocide uh, on the occupied territories of the Soviet Union in Europe uh, to be given shelter in Canada after the Great Patri Patriotic War. Uh, now, we would uh, also put on screen some comment from Ukraine if we were had been able to find any, but uh, there hasn't been any uh, there as yet. Uh, but this is how uh, the mainstream press was characterizing it, how the Canadians had Zelensky accidentally uh, praise a Nazi hero in Ottawa, giving Russian propaganda a boost. So it was all an accident. Uh, Alex, I don't know if you've got any thoughts. Uh, the 14th Waffen SS Regiment Galician was very notorious. If you read the memoirs of uh, SS volunteers from Western Europe, many of them came from Benelux. Um, they were ideolo ideological. Many of them had very little to say. It may be, of course, self-censorship after the war, but they had very little, little say about hatred of the Jews. It was the Bolsheviks they feared. And many of them were just uh, louts out for an adventure. But for the men in that country, it's in that zone itself, from Estonia all the way to Moldova, uh, sometimes they were press-ganged by the Soviets or the, the, the Wehrmacht into joining the, the respective units. And sometimes they chose. Sometimes brothers were separated and hardly knew what was happening. Sometimes men fought on both sides. Mr. Hunka appears prima facie to have been an ideological opponent. He, in his own defense, would no doubt say that his country, his region of Ukraine, Galicia, was not a union until after the war, when, of course, the Western allies allowed Stalin to absorb it uh, at the expense of Polish territory. Uh, but be that as it may, the Galician division was particularly horrid. And um, I would say that the speaker, in any, certainly in any Anglo-Saxon country, has a duty to keep the decorum of the house by for him do a double take when the script was given him. If a political script is shoved in front of your note as a speaker, uh, you stop proceedings and say, we're not going on with this. Otherwise, you're not a speaker. And of course, the evident fault in what was said was that Mr. Hunka, for all his crimes and sins and those of his comrades, wasn't fighting the Russians, he was fighting the Soviets. A huge amount of detail has got lost here, uh, but the responses say quite something. I happen to be in Poland right now, no time to go into it, but the show notes will have a link to the conference on technocracy that I'm attending here at the Jagiellonian University in Kraków. Um, so uh, I sense the Poles ire at this because they are very pro-Ukrainian. Uh, they wish to do their best by the refugees, um, and they're very sensitive about the massacres of, uh, of, of Gentile Poles that happened particularly by the Galician unit never been addressed uh, properly by Kiev. Indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, move back to uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Alex. Yes, uh, this time we're going to keep it even shorter, but we wish to focus on the humanitarian tragedy. Most particularly, what has gone on uh, is that people have decided, and in, in this region, of course, people are poor farmers, uh, and they usually have only one uh, petrol or, to the Americans, gas-powered car to go on. Uh, they've had to queue for their fuel. There's been a horrible gas explosion and the disfiguring burns of many. They've been airlifted or uh, transported by road to Armenia after 
hours of delay, precious time in medical treatment was was lost uh, because of the Azeri blockades. And it's often argued also, also Russian peacekeepers incompetence by some. That's very much open to question. Uh, but we will see now a brief segment by Deutsche Welle's uh, German service, the uh, equivalent of uh, BBC World for Germany, uh, talking about the uh, convoys of people leaving because they fear uh, being forced to become citizens or worse, torture and, uh, and dishonor if they stay. Uh, so Deutsche Welle is going into detail for just a couple of minutes on that, and we'll have Gevorg back. Armenia says around 3,000 refugees have crossed its border from the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Fears are growing for ethnic Armenians there since Azerbaijan retook control of the enclave last week. Many of the refugees are crossing into Armenia in cars and buses at Kornizor. DW reporters Maria Katamadze and Jennifer Palka have filed this report from the Armenian border village. Packed cars stream out of Nagorno-Karabakh as hundreds of ethnic Armenians flee their homes. Some vehicles bear the scars of the recent conflict. Aid groups are on hand to help as families cross the border into Armenia. The mass exodus sparked by fears for their fate under new Azerbaijani rule. Today we left. They told us either you leave or take Azerbaijani passport. We are not the kind of people who take up Azerbaijani passports. Azerbaijan retook Nagorno-Karabakh by force last week. The region sits within its borders, but had previously been under the control of ethnic Armenian forces. Around 120,000 Armenians live in the mountainous territory. Many fear persecution if they stay. That's despite Azerbaijan's promises that it wants to reintegrate them as equal citizens. Space for 40,000 people from Karabakh has been prepared in Armenia. Families standing by for their loved ones' arrival face a nervous wait. Just before we bring Givorg on, the map will show just the complexity. The right-hand map here indicates what is in lurid green is what Azerbaijan retook a couple of years ago. Uh, the pinkish colour is the separatist part of Nagorno-Karabakh, which continued to rule itself as an ethnic Armenian territory, um, which may insist yet now that it has a case in international law uh, to declare independence at some point because of the per persecution. Um, but that's that's uh, for the future. Right now, the exodus is to the southwest of that area. In through, You can see Lachin, and just southwest of that, the border village of Kornizor, which is far as I've got in the region. If you follow the road, you will see Goris, the nearest town. I understand the hotels are fully booked with regular people, so that uh, the bedraggled refugees are really quite in a poor way and uh, having to be cared for by the locals of Goris more than even than the Armenian military uh, when they get to Goris. Uh, Gevorg, please update us on this just as briefly as you can, the humanitarian situation as it's being told to people you know uh, in and around Goris. Well, since I'm in uh, constant contact with the people uh, there in Kornitor and we're providing aid to the refugees, coming into Armenia, we're aware that almost 60,000 people have crossed that border to this moment. Overall, it is estimated that uh, Nagorno-Karabakh area had 
110,000 Armenian people living in that territory. So at least 60,000 have now crossed into Armenia, and uh, we're waiting for more people to come in. These people are being uh, dispersed throughout the whole territory of Armenia. They're getting initial aid at Kornizor and Goris, and uh, that is by the Armenian populace and the Armenian government. Uh, yesterday, there were uh, several statements by a number of European and uh, transatlantic uh, countries uh, stating that uh, there will be assistance provided to those people from the international partners. And uh, there's several statements that uh, Russia's made in regard to that, but, uh, but all the Russian aid uh, was, was, was that they, uh, they protested against uh, the way the government in Armenia is handling this case with, uh, with the Russians rather than, rather than just saying that they will or will not provide any support to these people or, or even uh, express condolences, let alone let alone, of course, take some of the responsibility for what they, their troops have done in that area. And we'll just in passing show the light blue areas north and south of the Lachin Corridor, as well as the area around Agdam to the right of uh, Ashkeran there. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Givorg, these were the areas directly controlled by the Russian peacekeepers in the, are arranged in November 2020, correct? Everything in in uh, in pink on on the right hand map was controlled by the Russians, and the Russians have started uh, to gradually submit all of the key points to the Azeris uh, as as of the six commanding months, heights, well, as it nine, were. Well, the commanding heights and the Lachin Corridor. The Lachin Corridor was submitted nine months ago, and the whole region was in a blockade, uh, short of food short of electricity, short of gas. Uh, basically, all the, the substance for, for people was cut by the Azeris with the Russians' consent. Then what they've done, they've kept the people hungry and cold and uh, without, uh, without any aid, medical aid and so forth, for, for nine months. And then after the nine months, the shellings begin, the Azeris come in, the Russians move out, they didn't do anything at all. There was only one small group of the Russian peacekeepers who have disobeyed the, the, the orders that they had, and they've gone into the place, uh, to the village, where, where the massacres were happening. That's in the area of Taravart village in, in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. They took the footage of everything that's been going on, and uh, the Azeris detained these Russian peacekeepers, these several people, and upon holding them in custody for uh, several hours, they've released them only to murder them just just an hour after their uh, drive into the city of uh, Stepanakert, the capital of Karabakh, began. So basically, they've, they've released those Russians, they've let them uh, have their phones with them with all the footage, but they've, they've murdered them all the way, on the way. And then the next day, Aliyev says, I'm very sorry, Putin. You know, we've killed them by accident. However, this was no accident whatsoever. And, and these people, they were the heroes that uh, represent the true nature of humanity in, in, in the best possible terms as, as this could be perceived by, by the Armenians and by, by any international observers that know about the situation. 
And we'll be going into more detail about this in extra time. I can imagine viewers are quite be, be, uh, befuddled by all the detail here and horrified. So stick around for extra time. We also have one more brief segment on Armenia in the main news. Okay, thank you, Alex. Uh, and let's uh, just quickly go back to Ukraine. And uh, well, this story appeared in Sputnik International. Uh, Russian reconnaissance team destroys Leopard tank in special op zone with fully German crew. Uh, and just looking at the text, of this, it says a Russian reconnaissance team has destroyed a German supplied Leopard tank of the Ukrainian military with a crew comprised of Bundeswehr soldiers in the Zaporozhye direction. Uh, take that means region, it's translation there. Uh, the team led with the moniker uh, Legend told Sputnik on Saturday. Uh, and they quote somebody, the mechanic repeatedly stated that he was not a mercenary, but a Bundeswehr serviceman, uh, and that he uh, and the rest of the crew were members of the same unit of the German army. This is according to a Russian fighter reported by uh, Sputnik, adding that while receiving medical aid, the German soldier named his brigade and his dislocation site. Uh, the tank driver died from wounds minutes after he was found, despite efforts to save him. Now, what's interesting, uh, Brian, is that uh, this has been... Certainly, there's been no confirmation of this from the Russian side or the Western side, as far as I can see. Um, and so we've got to say that this has to be taken with a very large pinch of salt, perhaps. But the question is, uh, what I'd just be interested in your thoughts about the potential of German or other NATO forces actually involved in the conflict? Well, I think this one's easy, Mike. Um, this had to happen at some point because, of course, we started out with principally special forces on the ground. They were there training and reconnaissance. But we've had massive mission creep as the, as the additional weapons, the uh, armed personnel carriers, the tanks have gone into Ukraine. They've needed assistance to help operate this uh, gear, to maintain it, to do repairs. And that has inevitably meant that Western military person personnel have been sucked into the theatre. The next step, of course, is that they're going to be helping to move equipment from one place to the other. So really, this is very, very serious, because if it's true, it represents that NATO is now at war with, with Russia without any declaration to the nation states within NATO. Uh, Alex, uh, let's come back to you. In the final segment, we're going to consider the geopolitical ramifications, famously not something you can do in a minute. We're going to give people a taster and a, a hook to, to hang their thoughts on, shall we say. Um, in short, the United States and France, both uh, reliable old allies of Armenia because of the huge diasporas of Armenians in both countries, have stepped into the breach, really, much more than Britain. Famously, in 1917, uh, uh, even 1915, during the first uh, days of the uh, Armenian massacres in what was then the Ottoman Empire, Prime Minister Lloyd George said, well, we have the world's best navy, but sadly, His Majesty's ships cannot climb Mount Ararat as a get-out clause for doing nothing. So the French and uh, Americans, both diplomats on the ground and um, uh, many uh, church-based relief efforts did a lot more, both in-country and when Armenians reached there at the shores of France and the USA, hence the large communities there. Uh, but this takes the unlikely form now of Samantha Power, known to many of our viewers for her standoffs with the late Vitali Churkin when uh, they were the respective uh, permanent representatives of, of their nations in the UN Security Council. Here, Samantha Power is playing it cool. I know she's not everyone's cup of tea in this, on this channel. Uh, understandable reasons. But here she's standing in the Lachin corridor on the border between 
Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia proper, and she gets interrupted. Uh, we will uh, give a verbatim account of the interruption if people cannot hear it in the clip, but obviously tempers are fraying. She claims she's no longer a power diplomat. She's just an aid coordinator. I don't really buy that. But she's been dispatched because the State Department, obviously, and uh, Washington generally, is keen to, to show that it won't put up with this. Uh, you know, the current issue, of course, is getting people out whether the US and France then say, okay, the, the territory has been denuded of ethnic Armenians, they've been forced out of their homes, but they have now a case in law to, do, to declare uh, independence in a way that international would recognize is open to question. So here is Samantha Power in her new capacity as head of USAID talking at the border between Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. There are still tens of thousands of uh, ethnic Armenians who are there living in very vulnerable conditions. And already you are seeing as well the um, gathering of testimonies from people who have fled uh, violence, deprivation, and uh, with the fear of living uh, under the government of Azerbaijan. Our Thanks in Azerbaijan or go back to your country. No, care, stop the lies. Our focus, again, right now, and I'm USAID administrator, is meeting the humanitarian needs of individuals in really vulnerable circumstances and uh, looking out for and securing access to uh, individuals who are either uh, unable to proceed on the corridor because it is blocked with traffic or uh, in some cases too scared uh, to make the journey to where we are today. For anyone who didn't catch it, the angry words in the background at the press conference were sanction Azerbaijan or go back to your country. You don't care. Stop lying. Well, Gevorg, you take a more positive view of Samantha Power or perhaps more of, of her earnest than I would. Uh, but why are the US and France physically present? You know, just even as turns up in Nakhichevan, evidently planning to try to bulldoze a hole through Armenia proper uh, to, in the Zangizor uh, corridor in Sunik. Why is it that, okay, not just the Americans and the French are getting interested, but as I understand your analysis, even Britain, historically pro-Azeri in this, uh, you know, see our previous podcast in the show notes on that, gold, guns and gas, a pre-cooked soft British power ceasefire. Uh, why is it that all of the Western allies, particularly the UN Security Council, permanent three in the West, um, are making a big on Armenia now? Well, Alex, I wouldn't necessarily say that I take a more positive view on Samantha Powell than you do. Uh, you've mentioned earlier that uh, we, none of us are impartial, as it were, because you can't, you can't be just neutral. But uh, I, as, as, just as well as you are, I'm attempting to be on the side of what I believe to be the truth. And uh, if, if, if the truth comes from Samantha Powell, then, then that's, that's what I'm going to say to be, uh, to be the truth. Uh, she's not my favorite person, but never mind. Now, of course, Armenia is becoming crucially important geopolitically because of uh, precisely this tiny bit of uh, the area that connects Armenia to Iran. Uh, 
we have indeed talked about it in our in our podcast, but now this has become an acute and a very serious problem. Uh, the uh, whole concept of what's going on is that we now are on the verge of another Axis and allies forming uh, in, in 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 this our modern day and age, and part of a uh, part of the Axis would be Turkey, Azerbaijan, China, and and the Central Asian Stan countries, and that would be the line of uh, trade and uh, oil export and gas export that would securely cut Iran and India off from, uh, from, from, from the international trade in a very significant way. But that's not Europe's interest, and that's not uh, the British interest, that's not the American interest. It is in the interest of China, and it's in the, in the interest of Russia, because that way Russia would control a great segment of trade coming from China into Europe and further, further west. And, and, and then uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan would be Russia's aides and Russia's allies in making sure that there's no way to evade Russia other than going through Turkey and Azerbaijan. So they're playing it together. Whereas on the other hand, there is this new goal and the new program that is being implemented gradually, and that is uh, the establishment of, uh, of the trade route from India through Iran, Armenia, Georgia, and further into Europe. And of course, we see that with the British politics and the American politics, we see that there is a growing support in the West for developing India and boosting India as a counterbalance to China. And uh, even Rishi Sunak in his early days in the parliament or as the head of the as as the prime minister, he said that our golden age of friendship with China is over. That's uh, not a direct quotation, but that's something that he said. That's the essence of what he said, and that's of course because now Britain and Europe, including France and Germany and the United States, they're now trying to boost India, Indian trade through Iran, Armenia, Georgia into Europe. And that is uh, directly contrary to that other idea, because the other idea is to cut off that tiny region of Armenia, control it. The Russians want to control it, and the Turks want to control it, and then uh, they agree to have a shared interest there. So whoever wins, basically, if it is the Russians and the Turks versus the West, then uh, they are going to be holding the West hostage in terms of uh, the trade uh, between the East and the West. And, and if the West is able to secure Armenia as a, a secure place for, for, for transportation of goods and for trade, uh, a trade hub like that, then of course the West is going to make sure that it is independent of any pressure from either Russia or China in terms of any of the transportation uh, of goods, and potentially uh, the West is going to be able to control uh, gas and oil trade coming from the Central Asian states into the West through controlling them or by controlling them through Armenia, through holding uh, some, uh, some upper hand 
uh, over them by by having influence in Armenia. So that's that's Thank the context of why 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 these people want to help right now. Thank you very much, Givorg. Not easy to summarise in a main news segment, but we'll go into more detail in extra. Thank you, Alex. Yes. Right, look, we are uh, just going to uh, move on to uh, the, the UK Health Security Agency uh, at the end uh, because they have been particularly busy. Uh, we'll just get through this as quickly as we can. We're just jumping over a couple of uh, uh, bits here. Uh, but first of all, they have been uh, creating a new contract for uh, vaccines. Um, so we'll bring this on screen in just one second. Uh, sorry for the technical problems today. We got, uh, yeah, here we go. Right, so here we go. Uh, so new UK-based vaccine deal is what the UK Health Security Agency is talking about. They're saying the UK HSA has agreed to deal with millions of, four millions of life-saving vaccines to be produced in the UK if a future influenza pandemic is ever declared. Uh, the advanced purchase agreement uh, means healthcare company CSL uh, Sakaris will be on standby to produce over 100 million influenza pandemic vaccines if or when they are needed. Now, of course, this was exactly the type of uh, situation that we had with COVID-19 because uh, AstraZeneca was given an advanced purchase agreement even before uh, there was any uh, thought of a clinical trial. Uh, and lots of money was guaranteed AstraZeneca. We were asking the question at the time, does this mean that uh, the UK government knows that the vaccine would be approved, whether it passes clinical trials or not? Or was the deal that uh, AstraZeneca would get paid, whether they had to produce a single uh, vaccine or not? So I would like to extend the same question to this. Uh, what exactly will be the circumstances? Uh, how much money is going to this? Uh, in the meantime, the vaccines will be tested, licensed and approved and tailored to combat the specific pandemic flu strain identified at the time. Um, so what testing is going to be able to be done at the time? <laughs> this looks like the same, the COVID-19 model being rolled out again. Uh, they will be produced at CSL Sakaris' uh, uh, existing manufacturing plant in Liverpool in the event a pandemic is declared by the World Health Organization. Uh, Jenny Harries, the CEO of the UK Health Security Agency said, uh, we've seen from past pandemic events, including COVID-19, that access to effective, effective vaccines is vital to help save lives and minimize disruption to our lives and livelihoods. I think we can uh, discuss that a little bit more in extra. And just uh, so that we know that when a pandemic is likely to be uh, uh, called, uh, the UK Health Security Agency has created a new data dashboard. Uh, they're saying this dashboard, uh, which went live uh, ye uh, yesterday, uh, will be updated on Thursday each week. Uh, it'll be initially featuring the latest information on a number of respiratory diseases, including COVID-19, as you can see on screen, uh, and influenza. Those are the only two that are on there at the moment, but they're going to be adding RSV, which is respiratory uh, syncytial uh, virus, uh, adenovirus, uh, human uh, HMPV, uh, para-influenza, para and uh, rhinovirus. So this is going to be a big uh, effort to make sure that the uh, propaganda is out there in time for the World Health Organization to declare the next pandemic? Uh, the next pandemic, Mike. Well, I'll pop this one on screen very uh, quickly. Thank you very much to the viewer pointed at this uh, to me, gave it to me. Uh, Laura Koonsberg here from the BBC, delighted. So many have been in touch to say you enjoyed the state of chaos. Time to say 
Big thanks to dozens of interviewees who gave us their time and very talented team who made it, making it a dream. So this is really incredible if you just think about it. The BBC absolutely over the moon that when it reports the state of the country is chaos and breakdown, they did a good job and they're really pleased that they put it out. We'll be covering more on this in our future UK column news editions, but clearly the BBC is now part of the agenda for chaos and breakdown. Um, so uh, just a couple of things to add with here. Uh, this is a cartoon of a guy having a jab, wearing a mask, the nurse is wearing a mask. He is asking the nurse, what variant does this protect me against? And she's saying, you're actually helping transgender Ukrainians fight global warming. Uh, that, uh, I think, uh, is quite uh, appropriate. Uh, Alex, let's end with this one. A couple of meme responses to the events we covered in the main news here. Uh, on the left is Justin Trudeau in the three-pain meme of somebody sabotaging their own cycle ride by putting a spoke in the wheel, and the stages are calling all the truckers Nazis with Justin Trudeau on his bike, and then when he sticks the spoke in his own wheel, that's labelled inviting a literal Nazi to Parliament. And then when he crashes into the curb, he says, why would Vladimir Putin do this? Which he effectively did say the other day. And on the right is a meme of uh, Putin in his power post signing a decree labeled Putin signing a decree to send a Nazi to Canadian Parliament to embarrass Justin Trudeau. Yeah, yes, very good. Okay. OK, well, we're going to say we have to end today's news there. It's been a very interesting production today, but we've enjoyed it. So a very big thank you um, to you, Alex, and also Gavorg. Both of you will be with us for extra time in a few moments. So that will be good because there's a lot to discuss. And I just want to say uh, to end today's news, um, it's... It's fantastic to be in this new building, and this can only have happened with the tremendous support of everyone who's um, given donations to the UK column or subscribed or both. It's been your financial support that has helped us achieve this major change. And although we've had some teething troubles today, uh, things will settle down and you've made our lives so much easier. It's, it's really Fantastic. So thank you all very much indeed. We'll be back in a few moments for extra time. Bye-bye. All right.